Hello and welcome to Frank Fire Fridays. This is Father Patrick Bykowskis broadcasting today as usual from St. Dominic Prior in St. Louis, Missouri. And let us begin as we always do with a prayer. God of the present moment, all I have is the moment right here and now. Teach me how to be present to my right now reality, not what I wish or long for. No matter what happens in my life, your presence will always nurture and sustain me. Amen. Another nice prayer from our contributor in Lafayette, Indiana, and thank you as always as well to her. And today we are going to have another interview with one of my uh, brothers here in the studio. Brother uh, Alonso Amadeo Salas, who's a brother of the Southern Province, beginning his second year of studies. So welcome, Alonso, to Frank Fair Fridays. Thank you for having me. And our audience is people from St. Louis and Lafayette primarily, but actually we have listeners all around the world, people who mostly were at Purdue and then have left and moved home, wherever that might be. I doubt there's very many people at all that have met you. How would you describe yourself to someone who, like today, is meeting you for the first time? Well, I think the three things that come to mind is I'm a Dominican friar, first and foremost, and I'm a Southerner. I think that's a big one. I'm a Southerner. And the third thing is uh, I'm a young man who admires solitude. Mm. But those are the three things that really, I think, encapsulate who I am. Yeah. Hmm. So, you know, I was telling Alonso before we started that I was re reading some of his Facebook posts, and it um, gave me some nice insights into him. And a couple of the things that I read have to do with his ministry this past summer and if you were listening last week, I think it was, and I was in, uh, interviewing uh, Brother Joseph Cullen Hilliker, he was talking about his experience as a chaplain in a, a trauma ward in Houston. And Alonso, you posted a couple of things uh, about your summer experience in Memphis with Catholic Charities. Tell our, tell our listeners first, how do, those, how do those things come about? How do you get assigned a ministry in the summer like this ministry that you experienced in Memphis? Well, it all comes down to the decision of the student master. Uh, two of my classmates, three of my classmates, sorry, were sent to Puerto Rico, but Father Scott thought, thought it prudent to send me to uh, Memphis. Um, but yeah, it was uh, under the purview of uh, Father Scott to send me to, yeah. to Memphis. So, your ministry was with Catholic Charities. Correct. And what were your responsibilities there this summer? What sorts of things were you expected to do as part of that ministry? Engaging with the poor, uh, talking with them, listening to them, uh, exercising my ministry of presence. Um, at first it was uh, a little bit, I was a little bit nervous because I grew up in a low-income neighborhood, and I would see them at a distance, the poor and the homeless. And this is in Texas, right? This is in Texas, Fort Worth, Texas, South Side. And my parents would be very careful about, you know, don't get near them, you know, we can offer them a little bit of money, and then, you know, back away. 
So being in Memphis was the first time where I could actually approach them and listen to them and talk to them and hear their stories. That's the thing that I hungered for the most was um, hearing their stories, hearing their uh, tragic upbringings. But that was the primary mission of why I was sent to Memphis, to be with them, to be a companion, and to be, above all, I think, a friend and a brother. When you speak about a ministry of presence, what do you think the person gets out of it to whom you're ministering? I think they get a moment of catharsis, this transference of fear and self-loathing onto an authoritarian vessel. And that vessel of authority is my voice. And all I have to do is just listen to them. Because these are individuals who have never had a chance to tell their stories to anyone. Because they are outcasts, they are estranged, they are the disenfranchised. So for me to listen to them, to hear them out, because no one else will, provided a moment of relief for, for them. And what's their response how how is it that they uh react to this opportunity to have someone there to to listen to well it uh, varies from person to person but what i gen generally narrowed uh down from my experiences was there are those who really acknowledge that there is a certain kind of power that's around them when they see me with my habit i was allowed to wear the habit which i'm very grateful for and with those individuals, they were very attentive. They were very receptive. Some individuals, they were, they were like, well, are you going to talk to God about me? Is that what we're going to talk about? And with them, you have to be a little bit more sensitive, a little bit more gentle, and just tell them, no, we can talk about anything, about anything you want. And, of course, the undertone has to be Christ-like, in my opinion, right? When conversing with someone that doesn't involve God in the conversation. It has to have those Christ-like undertones. Then the third and last kind of person were the ones that just were completely barricaded. I do not want to talk to you, which I met a few. Mm -hmm. And those were a little bit, um, I had to be very careful around them, give them enough space. But those were the three types of individuals who I, I came across during my time at Catholic Charities. What, what does that undertone of Christ sound like? Well, you have to relate to them in a way that makes Christ palpable, tangible. Because it's easy for me to say Christ is in heaven, enjoying the banquet, always in glory. You have to remind them that Christ suffered, and he suffered a lot. And one thing that I learned in my experience, I'm always chasing after authenticity. If there's anything that I want to be, it's to be authentic. And so when I met these individuals and heard their stories, you know, I realized that, okay, God, in this environment, in this surrounding, in, in these surroundings, is like a lion. He is a hunter. And I tell them, you're being chewed up. You're being eaten up by the lion. He's chasing after you. But it's not because he's a predator. It's not because he wants to hurt you. It's because he wants to show you what's beneath your skin, what's beneath your bone, your flesh, the marrow of your bones. He wants to show you what's beneath all of the flash and the fire. And it's the thumbprint of God. That's what he wants to show you. And you're going to be in the mouth of that beast. You're going to be in the stomach, in the dark, and it's going to be horrible. It's going to be wanton. It's going to be inglorious. 
But if you fight through it, if you overcome it, you come out of that mouth changed, transformed, and you come out looking like the crucified Christ. Mm -hmm. And that for them, when I told that to them, to a variety of them, something clicked and they realized God is closer to me than I thought. And when I, when I shared that um, notion with them, that theological notion, I think they realized and really recognized that God can be a dimensional entity and not just something that's distant. You know, one of the people that you mentioned in your reflections, I'm talking about reflections that, that Brother Alonso has posted on his Facebook page, was, was about Henry, who we met on the... I, I mean, actually, what, what, what is the setting in where you're meeting these people? It is in the courtyard over in Catholic Church, which is in the front. Okay. So, um, tell us a bit about your experience with Henry. What was it that, that you encountered in Henry that, that prompted you to share what you, what you did with those people that are following you? Oh my gosh. Henry, I mean, his presence was so contagious. It was so infectious. I wanted to be around him. Uh, this is a man who was incarcerated for 35 years. And after leaving uh, prison, he had no friends, no family. He suffered through several strokes and heart attacks. But despite all of that, despite the chaos that he underwent, he still believed in God. And that to me was just a moment of, of an unknown wonder that I've never encountered before. And so when I came across him, it wasn't like the other individuals that I, that I met. The other individuals, they wanted to talk about Memphis, they wanted to talk about music, and so on and so forth. This man came to me and he told me, I'm sad. I'm sad because of the people who die in the Titan submersible. And I'm thinking to myself, this man is so self-aware. He's thinking not only of himself, or of his city, but beyond. And he had this outlook that I didn't really encounter with the other folks that I was talking to. And talking to him, I'm so glad because the last conversation I had over in Memphis was a, conversa was a very quiet conversation with Henry. Um, but he is someone who is close to representing what sainthood looks like in fragments. Hmm. In what way? I think it's his spirit. It's so enthusiastic. I mean, he he counted. To, he recounted his hard, very hard upbringing and the moments of of loss that he encountered during prison, knowing that family and friends were distancing, you know, were distancing themselves from him. And so, you know, leaving the prison, leaving that environment and coming into this new world completely with new eyes. And just still with the belief that God is here. I mean, he, he hung on to that. And that's something that I, that I saw with the poor. With the poor, there is only God. They may have 
clothes, the few things they have on their back, but there is only God. Whenever I speak about God, they immediately get teary-eyed. They get emotional. And this was no different with Henry. Because it's all they have. It's all they, they hang on to. But that's what made, uh, that's what made Henry's spirit so saintly, in my opinion, is that he clung to God. His only focus was to survive, and by surviving, it was through God's grace that he was able to survive. What is it that you shared with them about God that moved them in that way? Aside from the image of God being a lion, I shared with, I shared with them the image that Jesus, right, the Son, is a brother. I related to them a little bit more because I'm not planning to be a priest. I'm planning mm -hmm. to be a lay brother. And so when they heard that, you know, they they became, they opened up more. You know, you're not going to be in the altar celebrating the Eucharist. As beautiful as that is, right? Mm -hmm. I'm going to be with them. I'm, I'm going to be in the audience with them. And so when I told them that Jesus is like a brother, that Jesus is someone whose hand is over your shoulder consoling you and giving you counsel and really listening to you and not just giving you these notes of wisdom mm -hmm. that really touch them like they, okay there is someone out there mm. who can listen to me who is able to listen to me Jesus right but me being there gave them a foretaste of what that looks like if they follow Jesus more closely. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, do you, how much of in, in sharing that with them? How much do you think they might see Christ in you? How do you mean? Well, because the way that you're describing that way that Christ is listening to them mm -hmm. the, the thing that I'm thinking of well, Alonso is the one right now in that moment who's listening to me and maybe Alonso is just like Jesus Christ Jesus is listening to me Alonso is very intent and focused on me just like he's telling me Christ is that's uh, that's a very heavy <laughs> that's a very heavy question because of course we all want to be like Christ yeah. we all aspire to be like like him and we all especially us religious I mean we try our, our hardest to imitate him in, in the best ways possible um, I have this whenever I win off to ministry uh, and whenever I leave my room here you know, I have this paper that I read, it's right next to my door, and it's me asking God, Lord, your son has sent us on a mission. Who do you want? Who do you want? And God is telling me, I want your very best. I want your most humble, your most charitable, your most selfless, this very long list, your most strongest, your most courageous. I do not want imitators of my son. I want men and women, an army of men and women who are Christ in heart and mind. 
And so when I went with that kind of mindset to my ministry or to prayer here in the chapel, I came with the mindset that I am Christ, but I am only He because of His grace. That's why I pray. That's why I kneel. That's why I, you know, knock on, knock the door on, on my heart because I am a sinner. And I'm only alive because of God's mercy, because of His grace. And when I recognize that, I really do attain, I think, a level of enlightenment of how much of God's presence is around me and in me. And how through that, I can affect people's lives through my preaching, through my conversing, because I think that's what we are ultimately as preachers, right? Mm -hmm. We create miracles through our words, and I really believe that. And of course, that call is something that we all share. We're all to be the face of Christ to the people that we encounter. In the experience that you had encountering the poor on the streets of Memphis, what what counsel might you give our listeners who encounter the poor in their neighborhood or when they're driving to work or when they're out for a walk? Because I think there's, you know, to be honest, there's probably a lot of fear, uh, and I don't know that it's that very much of that is justified. Certainly there's a, maybe we all have to be cautious with whoever we might meet on the street, but how would you how would you suggest that any of us are to be Christ to the people to especially those who are dispossessed and on the margins the easiest way is if you ever see a homeless person someone that's poor say a Hail Mary say a Hail Mary for that person pray for that person right that's the easiest thing to do the second thing is to approach them, and that is scary. I totally admit, it's very frightening, because you don't know. You don't know what's gonna happen. Kelly Henderson, the CEO, uh, the executive director of Catholic Charities down in Memphis, Tennessee, he told me that, do not be scared of approaching the poor. You know, that man or woman might be drunk, might be high, might be a little bit crazy, he might throw a beer bottle at you. It's Jesus. Mm -hmm. And when you approach that person with that in mind, the fear lessens. And then talk to them. Really talk to them. Take out a good 30 minutes of your day to talk to them, to hear them out. And it's, you know, we're very busy bees, I know. We live in a very frenetic, very hectic age. But if we slow down, if we slow down and take the time to really approach him and to listen to them, we will learn something, not only about them, but about ourselves, yes. our own humanity. It's a good segue because I was going to ask you, what did you learn about yourself in this summer ministry, in this experience of working with the poor on the streets of Memphis. About myself? About yourself, yeah. Uh, myself, oh man. I, I can go on and on about myself. I love the South. 
it's it's such a unique place but what I learned uh, what Memphis taught me really about the South is that toughness is really much alive most of the people that I encountered were men and despite their very difficult upbringings as kids, teenagers, and young men, you know, they, they, they're still resolute. They, they, they're still convinced that they can manage, that they can overcome. But there is a, a certain level of humility that I encountered that I've never seen before. And by that I mean they were open they were more open to reach out. They were more open to acknowledge, I need help. I need help. And that's very hard for a man to do. It's very hard mm -hmm. for a woman to do, especially in those circumstances. But that's what Memphis taught me when it concerns myself, that toughness is very much alive and that humility is very much alive as well. How much of, well, let me, less that, less of it, uh, and this will be the last question, so I don't want to give too much of a leading question. What is it that you do that nourishes you to be able to do these sorts of, you know, still you're very early in your, your religious life. Um, the, uh, the ministry that you undertook that was assigned to you is a very challenging ministry. How do you do it? How are you able to accomplish the things that you think God is calling you to do in a ministry like that? Well, I keep, uh, I keep myself disciplined. I'm known around uh, the Priory here for being an early riser. So I wake up at 3 a.m., I go for a three to five mile run, and then from four to five, I exercise. From five to six, I rest, you know, I take a cold shower, protein shake, watch the news. And then from six to seven, I do a holy hour. And then at seven, of course, there's morning prayer with the community and mass. But when I had that kind of rigorous schedule, that happened gradually, mind you, it didn't happen overnight, mm -hmm. I really become more focused on what I want to do. My, my, I'm more intentional with my decisions. Mm -hmm. And because I have to sleep very early, like eight, eight the latest, right? My time, although it may seem that it's squeezed, I become more deliberate on what I want to do. Mm -hmm. Like, do I really want to see this video or do I really need to read that book? my priorities get straightened out and my schedule becomes more ironed out with this mm -hmm. uh, rigor that, I, that I've implemented. And mind you, this schedule is very much inspired. My dad, he wakes up at 3 in the morning, but he goes mm -hmm. to sleep at 11. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, he's, a, he's a welder, he's a tough guy. I'm never going to be tough like him. <laughs> but um, the brothers here, I mean, the brothers, they've inspired me greatly. One of them does a holy yeah. hour every day. Another brother wakes up early. I mean, there are so many inspirations around here that really help me build the schedule up, right? Yeah, yeah. I have so many other questions for you, but maybe I'll have you come back, Alonso. Uh, I'll let the audience know. Some of our, we have some mutual interests. There's some music genres that he and I both like. We both like movies. Uh, I was looking over his reading list. He was focusing a lot on Southern writers, but um, there's several, especially Thomas Wolfe, that I, I like very much. I sold Alonso before we interviewed. If somebody put a gun to my head and made me uh, state what my favorite book is, it would probably be Look Homeward Angel by Thomas Wolfe. But um, 
I'll tell you, Alonso, uh, I am I, very inspired in hearing your, your experiences this summer, and I hope um, I hope your, your witness to that experience will inspire, especially our brothers, but our, our listeners as well, because we are certainly all called to be the face of Christ to people in our lives. Well, thank you so much for having me, Father Patrick. It's been a real pleasure. I was a little bit nervous, but... I mean, with with your voice, I think I'm I'm more relaxed. <laughs> Good. God bless you, Lanzo. God bless you all. See you next week.